I know what you're thinking. And you're right. But Andrew, you're thinking. At the end of last time's episode, you said that the next episode would be the commentary on The Incredible Hulk Returns with you and Michael Bailey. Well, yes, lovely listener, you are absolutely correct. I did say that. However, in the interim, something happened. I contracted food poisoning, which meant I was off work for three days, more or less, um, where I couldn't really do anything other than drink water and eat rice. So by the time we got to the third day of being ill, uh, I was kind of over it, but I was still told by my doctor to stay off for the extra day. So to keep myself busy, I thought, I know, I'll write an episode of Palace of Glittering Delights. And thus, I did. So that's this episode. Hope you enjoy it. Cue the music. Before Star Wars was a twinkle in 20th century Fox's eyes, Planet of the Apes ruled the roost as a science fiction juggernaut. When I was a kid, I had access to a lot of Marvel UK comics that were printed when I was very young, thanks to my dad, who brought boxes of this stuff with him when he married my mum. In addition to devouring the usual fur, Spider-Man Comics Weekly, The Mighty World of Marvel and others, I was also introduced to Dracula Lives and Planet of the Apes. Both titles felt slightly too old for me, which was probably what was so appealing about them. They both had slightly more adult covers, sometimes painted, and the stories were more unsettling. It was hard not to be aware of Planet of the Apes from these comics. The UK really did go ape. The comic was very popular with adverts for it and other merchandise in all the Marvel Weekly comics of the time. As would later happen with Star Wars, this weekly schedule was a headache on both sides of the Atlantic, and as such, writer Doug Mensch was regularly asked to come up with additional stories for the UK title, which would often see print later in the US magazines. To make up for this shortfall, Marvel UK took to reformatting old Killraven strips, renamed him Ape Slayer, and stuck ape heads over his opponents. The comic debuted on British stands in October of 1974, the same month that the TV series debuted on ITV, only scant weeks after its US debut in September of the same year. For Fox, there were numerous advantages to spinning apes off into a series. The movie series was losing its luster, but the property was still popular, so in one of the first franchise moves, Fox tried to stretch the popularity out further in the hope of making a few more dollars. Taking an established name is something studios seem to love, as it has market recognition, and with apes they could take the sets, costumes and makeup, as well as stock footage from the films, to keep the costs down. They were also bolstered by the huge ratings the movies had received, and felt that if an ongoing series could maintain half of the 60% share of the audience the films had got, it would be a roaring success. Sadly, it was not to be. Whilst the comic and the TV show were huge successes on this side of the Atlantic, in the US it was a different story. Despite pulling in audiences of 12 million viewers on ITV, a remarkable figure that most top-rated shows today can't achieve, on the American CBS network the series only achieved a 27% share of the ratings, and CBS pulled the plug after only 14 episodes had been completed, with one segment, The Liberator, remaining unscreened. 
The TV show seems to be the red-headed stepchild of the Apes franchise, but I'd argue that it's as least as entertaining of three of the five original movies, and in some cases better. The allegorical nature of the Apes storyline appealed to people from the very beginning, be it Pierre Boulle's original novel or the 1968 film adaptation, and this was carried over into the TV series. The show tackled themes of morality, prejudice and class via the Ape Society, which had orangutans as the ruling class, the gorillas as the enforcers and the chimpanzees as the intellectuals. While ostensibly family entertainment, critics noted that the TV show was slipping in these thought-provoking morsels for the viewers to chew on. The TV show seems to take place in a different continuity to the films, and one can get a headache from trying to consolidate the ape timeline from the original movies, comics, TV show and cartoons into one seamless whole. In the original movie, entitled Planet of the Apes, Charlton Heston's character, George Taylor, took off from Earth in 1972 and landed in 3978. The sequel, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, picks up almost immediately afterwards. However, the preview for the movie said it was set in 3955. As you will recall, the Earth is destroyed in that film, meaning there is no future after 3980, if we assume that the bulk of Beneath takes place a year or so after the first film. The third film, Escape from the Planet of the Apes, sees the two main ape characters, Zira and Cornelius, escape from the Planet of the Apes, hence the title, via Taylor's space shuttle, and they are thrown back in time to 1973. This leads into the fourth movie, Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, focusing on their child, Caesar, who leads the ape revolution in 1993, giving rise to the ape society we saw dominant in the first film. However, the next film, Battle for the Planet of the Apes, has humans and apes living in harmony. This was because the original ending to Conquest was far more bleak, with the humans being slaughtered outright by Caesar and his followers. This was changed after test screenings, which led to the fifth film having a drastically different status quo to the one Taylor found, but also apparently a stay of execution for the planet Earth. The fifth movie takes place in 2003 and 2600-ish. I mean, I suppose there's still time for things to go ape-shaped, but it seems that all this time travel tomfoolery has changed history, all given rise to alternate timelines. Now, I know what you're thinking, and you're right, but Andrew, where does the TV show fit into all this, you're thinking? Well, lovely listener, it's about to get complicated. The pilot episode of the TV series, entitled Escape from Tomorrow, sees two NASA astronauts, Alan Verdon, played by Ron Harper, and Peter Burke, played by James Norton, crash land on Earth in exactly the same way Taylor did in the first film. They launched on August 19th, 1980, according to the opening titles, and landed on June 14th, 3085, a good 900 years before Taylor. However, in the first show, the ape characters tell our heroes that a ship exactly like theirs landed 10 years before, in 3075. We presume this to be Taylor's ship, simply because that's the only frame of reference we have. However, Ron Harper gave an interview to Planet of the Apes magazine at the time of filming that implied that the chronometer on the space shuttle failed after a certain time, so the series could be set later than the given year. This information is reiterated in the pilot episode. To make matters even more confusing, Roddy McDowell plays three different ape characters over the movies and TV show. Cornelius and Caesar in the films, and Galen in the show. I suppose it's best to just not think too hard about any of this, because it's clear that the producers of the television show, and indeed the writers of the films, weren't giving it a lot of thought either. 
The other characters in the TV show are Dr. Zaius, the only film character to appear, here played by Booth Coleman, and General Urko, the pursuer of our heroes, played by Mark Leonard. The first episode, as is usual for this type of series, sets up the premise of the show, and it's a pretty familiar scenario to TV viewers seen in numerous shows like Kung Fu, The Fugitive, Space 1999, Logan's Run, Battlestar Galactica, etc, etc. Our heroes are fugitives, trying to get home and pursued by an implacable foe. In addition to a tried-and-true premise, the lead actors are blonde and brunette. See, Starsky and Hutch, The Dukes of Hazard, Alias Smith and Jones, Battlestar Galactica, etc. Unfortunately, Harper and Norton are relatively interchangeable. Neither of them make much of an impact. There's nobody with Paul Michael Glazer's intensity, Dirk Benedict's laid-back charm, or Pete Duell's charisma, but both are solid actors. Roddy McDowell and Mark Leonard are the real stars, managing to portray actual characters through a three-hour makeup job. Leonard's voice is particularly useful in this role. It's very commanding, as befits a general, and it's him who keeps the character from descending into Colonel Decker levels of ineptitude. McDowell is as good here as he is in everything I've ever seen him in, which is to say, very good. McDowell was always one of those actors who it was always a joy to see, whether stealing the show, as with his maniacal turn as the buttworm on Batman, or making a cameo, as he did replacing Al in an episode of Quantum Leap, McDowell was always a delight. Before we get into the episodes we've got stored here in the palace vaults, as usual I'm going to take time out to play the opening theme. The music for the series was by Laro Schifrin, and it's a sweaty and tense opening credit sequence. The choice of clips used is very effective, featuring spinning cameras and off-kilter angles to keep the audience off balance. Here's the theme. episode, Escape from Tomorrow, was written by Art Wallace and directed by Don Weiss. One of the reasons for believing that this is an alternate timeline is that the opening moments of this episode feature a child chimpanzee in possession of a pet dog. In the films, the sudden deaths of dogs and cats as primary pets for humans led to the adoption of apes and chimps in these positions. Apparently, the films caused such a screw-up in time that dogs and cats never died out. The monkey child sees the crash and runs off to tell his father. Whilst the monkey child is away, the three astronauts in the space shuttle are found by a wandering space hippie who looks like Buddy Ebsen but isn't. One of the spacemen is already dead, but space Buddy Ebsen manages to pull the other two out before the apes arrive to investigate the crash. The apes aren't happy about this. What is it, Prefect? 
I don't know. Keep your guns ready. <laughs> I suppose we should go in. Can I go too, Father? No. But, but I found it, didn't I? I said no. All right, let's go. Go. It's a human. I thought I told you to stay outside. Look, there were two more of them. I wonder where they are. We'll find them. You're not to say a word about this, you understand, Arno? Why not, Father? It's so exciting. It's, it's dangerous. Humans know their places. That mustn't change. If they were to find out that other humans could build and fly a machine like this... They begin to think they're as good as we are. But, Father, look. These humans must be better than we are. <laughs> You're not to say such a thing again. You're not even to think it. I want this body buried at once. The plot then follows similar beats to the movie. Burke and Viridan have to find out that they are on an Earth ruled by apes. Typically, for 70s TV, our heroes take this news rather stoically. Verdon, who has a wife and kids at home, tells Burke that they'll make it home, and Burke retorts, Knock it off, Alan. This is home now, and you know it. Following this conversation, only rare mentions of the life they've left behind is mentioned, which is sad. These could have led to some good character moments and drama. Exactly what are Burke and Verdon willing to do to get off this hellish planet? How far would they be willing to go to accomplish their goals? Stoicism only goes so far when you're hunted mercilessly by apes and have nowhere to run to. Verdon and Burke learn from space buddy Ebsen where they are. Over in Central City, where Gorilla Grodd is presumably on holiday, General Urko, Zaius and Galen have a revealing conversation. Another ship, Zaius? It's hard to believe. Can the chief of security afford not to believe it? How reliable is this prefect? Do you know him? Galen does. Oh, I don't a word of it. How could humans build and run such a machine? I mean, we can't even do it. Who is this fool, Zaius? Galen's going to be my assistant. Maybe. There were three humans, Urko. One is dead. The other two are still at large. They must be found and quickly. Yes, and killed. No! Brought back. Questioned by the High Council. This is an infection, Zaius. One doesn't question it, one wipes it out. Just as we did before. Not until we question its source. More than ten years ago, another such ship landed. Humans. They said they were from this world, but from another time period, long ago. You know, I've, I've heard stories like that, but I always thought they were stories. I never believed that it really happened. Yes, that's, all what, that's what we wanted everyone to think. There were such humans, Galen. And they called themselves... What was the word, Urko? Astronauts. Astronauts. Yeah. Astronauts. What were they like? They had greater knowledge and capabilities than our humans. And they had feelings of independence and freedom. You. You know, that's fascinating. Not fascinating, Galen. Unlawful. 
They would have encouraged our humans to be equally unlawful. But the danger was eliminated. They were killed. Before they could be questioned. My job is protection, not the gathering of useless information. No information is useless. We have to learn how they think, Wako. What makes them different from the humans we know. Once we learn how to deal with them. And any others that may come along. Then be killed. You will go along to see that nothing happens to these astronauts. I don't trust Wako. He won't listen to me, sir. You carry my authority when you go as my representative. Yes, sir. I note a certain lack of enthusiasm. You may have a chance to visit your second cousin on your mother's side. Well, to tell you the truth, sir, I never really liked him very much. So, so these, uh, these astronauts, are they truly different from the humans we know? Absolutely. And they are a threat. However, I want them alive. For now. Hmm. Well, it's a shame they have to be killed at all. They do sound so interesting. As you just heard, Zaius and Urk were engaged in a government conspiracy to cover up the news of the humans, as they did ten years ago. The series is vague here as to if these astronauts referred to are the same as the ones we saw in the film, but this is one of the more interesting aspects of the pilot show. Urko and Zaius know the truth and are actively misleading the people in fear of a human uprising and losing control. After all, if the government say it, it must be true. Vaden and Burke return to their ship, only to find that the apes are in the process of trashing it. Space Buddy Ebsen is killed, and Vaden and Burke are captured by the gorillas, but find an ally in Galen, who helps them escape back to the ship. From it, Vaden retrieves a memory disk that, if they are lucky enough to be able to locate an ancient computer, and if they are lucky enough that that computer works, will hopefully help them plot a course back to their own time. How they are going to return to their own time with a trashed spaceship is never actually mentioned. Verdon also managed to save his only link to the past, a picture of his family. McDowell has the best story arc in the pilot. Galen is not only fascinated by the human's ability to reason, but he also looks at the book Space Buddy Ebsen has and is intrigued. His curiosity and willingness to learn sets him apart from the others and shows a possibility that there may be hope for the future, something needed in the TV show to separate it from the nihilism and bleakness of the films, arguably the darkest movie series ever to be aimed at a family audience. As with the film, Galen eventually comes around, his doctrine challenged by the human's very existence. There are other parallels with the film as well, such as this trial scene which echoes the movie. Enemies of the state must be put to death. I remind the High Council that this is our law, and the law must be obeyed. What makes us enemies? We haven't done anything. Your ambitions are enemies. Your thoughts are enemies. What's your name, pal? Hitler? Stalin? Mussolini? Silence! Do you believe humans and apes are equals? In this world or ours? In any world! I don't know about any world. But I believe that all intelligent creatures should learn to live and work with each other as equals. Vacuum! They have convicted themselves, Zayas. Do you want this 
sacrilege and heresy to infect the rest of the humans? Certainly not, Wilco. And by questioning them, we will learn how to avoid it. Will you learn to avoid destruction? What destruction? We don't intend any destruction. You're human, aren't you? Would an ape have created such an instrument? Wilco, you had no right to take that. the real threat. There is the danger. Very good, Erko. The object you stole from my cabinet has provided a most dramatic display, proving only the importance of keeping these two humans alive until we learn how they create such destruction so we can prevent it. If in future there are others like them, Yes, I agree. It's true. Question them more. I'm sure that even the great Urko cannot quarrel with this decision. I'll quarrel with anything that keeps these two humans alive. Galen initially isn't willing to commit treason, but after Urko attempts to kill the humans, Galen accidentally gets caught in the middle and is set up for the humans' escape and the death of the ape guard, who was on watch that night. In his cell, Galen asks Zeus, why is the truth against the law? Burke and Verdon confront Zeus. Cooperate and we'll tie you up and they'll find you in the morning. What do you want? Where did you get this? A human. Who? He didn't live long enough to tell me his name. Where did he come from? I don't know. Look, I'm warning you. I know. Or you'll destroy me. As your kind once destroyed its world. What do you mean? Your science and your machines. Very few know your history. And very few will ever know. And your cities, death and destruction, we don't want them. We don't even want their memory. Oh, my God. Yes. You did it to yourselves, as you would do it again. That human was caught trying to sneak into the city. And yes, I had him killed as I will have you killed someday. As I must have poor Galen killed. Galen? The infection you carry is fatal. The first episode accomplishes exactly what it sets out to do. It's entertaining and well put together, with a good cast and interesting situations. The creation of the central metaphor for the show, racism, is well employed, especially for putting the two white-bred guys in the role of persecuted minority. There's some good dialogue exchanges and the differing points of view are well put forth. It's very well done for a pilot episode, and were I capable of watching television in 1974 and understanding narrative, I would have eagerly tuned in for the next week. The second episode I watched, randomly picked from the Palace Vault, is entitled The Trap, written by Edward J. Laxo and directed by Arnold Lavin. Urko and his team have rounded on Verdon and Burke, but to get away, they use poor Galen as a distraction for a nearby guard who is on duty. The editing here is quite bad. Verdon and Burke aren't quite in position for this ploy to work. 
Galen strides forth to speak to the guerrilla guard and tell them where Verdun and Burke have been seen located. Verdun and Burke are supposed to sneak up behind the guerrilla guard and clonk him on the head. But the actor playing the duped guerrilla has to say his line and then stand still for a moment as the actors get into position to attack him and knock him out. Even some badly sped up footage can't hide the bad stunt choreography. Burke does use a painted Captain Kirk move of leaping at the gorilla with both feet and then landing on his butt. Neither man has the brains to take the gorilla's gun. After sending Urko and his men off in the opposite direction, the three fugitives head to the village of Numar. However, Urko isn't dumb, and he notices the missing guard and puts two and two together to come up with three, i.e. Burke, Verdon and Galen, and he heads off to the nearby village. A series of earthquakes then hit the area, which will no doubt trap our heroes later, otherwise the title makes no sense. Our heroes are taken in by a bland and far too smiley family, whose daughter has found electric wire and other equipment that Verdon thinks could be very useful to their mission. The three men head off in the direction indicated by the girl as Urko rides into town. They're not here. Get out of my way. They're not here, I swear. I don't believe anything I hear in Numai. Orko, they're not in there. Whilst interrogating the family, Urko finds the knapsack with the electronic goods. What is this? Where did it come from? I found it. Where? I don't remember. I'm tired of these lies! Please, she's just a child. I want to know where she found it. In the city. The one called Verdon. He would want to investigate this. Is that right? Right. He would go to the city. No! They were afraid to go there. They went south. South? Are you certain? Yes, he's certain. Lies! Lies! Nothing but lies! We go to the city! Porco, how did you know they were lying? I always assume a human is lying. Makes things easier. I remember that. Urko isn't actually bad at his job, and therefore when he gets to the nearby town, he manages to trap the threesome. But one of the aftershocks causes momentary distraction, which enables our heroes to be separated. This is actually a really good scene. It feels dangerous in a way that McGee hunting Banner or Decker pursuing the A-Team never really did. When Burke is cut loose of the other two, his being forced to flee on foot from the gorillas on horseback is genuinely chilling. His being lassoed is an excellent piece of stunt work, and the doubling is really impressive, unless Norton did his own stunt here, which makes it doubly impressive. Tied together like a modern-day defiant ones, Burke and Urko fall into a crevice made by the quake and are lost from sight. We're trapped, Urko. You and me, together, just the two of us, you understand? We're trapped. Ugh. <sighs> 
Where are we? What is this place? A subway station. Subway station? Yeah. Look, see? B-A-R-T. Bay Area Rapid Transit. We're in the San Francisco area. Orko, look. See the, the entrance? It, it's caved in. We have no choice, Orko. We have to work together to dig ourselves out. I don't work with humans. I don't need humans. You might need me. I come from the time when this was built. I know things about this place that could help us. Look, do you know what that is? It's a railroad car, Urko. It used to carry people, uh, humans, on underground, on rails. Its power source was nuclear energy. Nuclear energy, you know, atomic power. Oh, never mind. Elohim! You know nothing of this place. Why would anyone want to travel in a thing like this, underground? How could anyone travel underground? It was a practical way of getting around large cities. Orko, there was a great city above us before the Holocaust. Holocaust? What kind of word is that? It's what happened. It's what, it's what went wrong with my world while I was traveling in space. Your world! I know there was something here before, but we were here until we were part of it. It was our world! Okay! Okay! Look, it's all right, it's all right. It's a simple question. Come on. You know where that light's coming from, Uncle? No. Solar energy, Orko. Solar from the sun. We took energy from the sun's light, stored it in batteries, which provided electricity. Somewhere out there, there's a solar shield that's still collecting energy from the sunlight. After all these years, some of the batteries are still working. There are certain things you don't know, Urko, that I do. Things you have to know in order to get out of here. You don't need humans, huh? Well, you need this human! Burke and Ergo land in an old abandoned subway station, and what follows is another take on the old two adversaries must work together to survive storyline, as seen on Battlestar Galactica's The Return of Starbuck, Enemy Mine and the UFO episode Survival, as well as various entries in the Star Trek The Next Generation canon. More than that though, The Trap is a story about entrenched beliefs and values. Urko, despite being given clear evidence to the contrary, simply cannot accept that his values, his belief, everything that makes him who he is, is wrong. He can't accept that humans once ruled, even though he knows it on an intellectual level. He really can't accept that humans may have been smarter than apes, because that is a threat to his way of life. He can't let humans have an equal footing, because that too is a threat to his way of life. Despite knowing in his heart that this is true. Even in the face of irrefutable proof, he cannot change his ways. It's a story about how the past can never really be escaped as long as there are people that hold grudges and cannot let go and embrace the future. The catalyst for all this is a simple poster advertising a zoo which Urko sees on the wall in the underground subway. The simple piece of paper provides all the proof needed to show that humans did once rule and apes were second-class citizens and maybe one day they can work together for the betterment of the world. Urko, however, refuses point-blank to accept this, as it completely flies in the face of his worldview. Upon their rescue, Urko demands that the humans and Galen are to be shot, despite them having had to work together to survive. Urko's second-in-command, however, refuses to go along with the order, as it is not their way to kill unarmed prisoners. 
he made a vow with Verdun and Galen, and he's determined to stick to his word. He orders the sick Urko to be taken away for medical attention and lets the fugitive go. However, he sees the same zoo poster which falls from Urko's glove and, in a fit of anger, tears it apart. Burke, likewise, is no better in this regard. Although he is willing to put aside their differences to achieve a common goal, he still thinks that this world is wrong and that humans should be in charge, refusing to acknowledge himself that apes in this world have achieved a level of intelligence that should be respected. Interestingly, Burke didn't feel the risk of coming here was worth it, but was outvoted by Verdon and Galen, and exactly what he predicted would happen did happen when he was trapped in the cave. Again, this could have been another source of conflict between Burke and Verdon. Burke followed what Verdon wanted to do and very nearly died for it. All told, this is a wonderful episode, replete with interesting ideas and good stunt work. By being forced by budget to have less spectacle than the films, it fills its running time with good dialogue, interesting dilemmas and decent acting. As with all good science fiction, it's looking at what is happening now and reflecting it in an allegorical guise. There's an old adage, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink. Here, that is turned around slightly. You can lead a man, or ape, to the truth but you can't make him think. The Planet of the Apes TV show lasted only half a season and was replaced by an animated ape series as Fox bled every last ounce of blood out of the ape stone. From my vantage point, it's hard to understand why the ape series didn't take off as well as it might have done. It's a very well done show of its type, nowhere near as bland as the Logan's Run TV adaptation and aptly concerned with having something to say as well as being fun for the family. A lot of much worse shows lasted for far longer. Still, there's no denying the show was repetitive, but again, no more repetitive than, say, The Dukes of Hazard or The Incredible Hulk, both of which had long runs, despite the formulaic nature of the scripts. However, those shows did have other things going for them to make them stand out. There was genuine humour in Dukes and good scripts and acting in The Hulk. Planet of the Apes should have had the best gimmick of all, but I think it failed because ultimately that's all it had. Like Space 1999, the show had no real forward momentum. The characters weren't going anywhere. Banner sought a cure. Galactica was seeking Earth. They both had somewhere to go, a goal to reach. They were never going to reach it, because if they did, the series ended, but there was at least a suggestion of urgency. Like Moonbase Alpha, Burke and Verdon were covering a lot of ground, but they weren't actually getting anywhere. The series didn't run long enough for a syndication package, and as such was rarely seen in reruns. To offset the costs, Fox cut ten episodes into TV movies, with grandiose titles such as Life, Liberty and Pursuit on the Planet of the Apes, and Treachery and Greed on the Planet of the Apes. They really rolled off the tongue. New links were recorded with McDowell to paper over any of the cracks in presenting two unconnected stories together as one film, in which he revealed that Burke and Verdon did eventually make it home. How they achieved this, and when, wasn't specified. The series was granted a complete DVD release that is available for a reasonable price nowadays, and is worth picking up if you have an interest in television sci-fi or Planet of the Apes in general. It's a notable footnote in the ape saga and the subgenre of films that were turned into TV shows and is nowhere near as bad as you may have been led to believe. If you're an apes fan, there's a lot to enjoy here. 
The weekly comic ran until February 1977 for an impressive 123 issues before being absorbed into the mighty world of Marvel. By 1977, however, a new space fantasy had arrived, eradicating all that came before and finally closing the door on the planet of the apes. Well, for now at least. Coming to media players everywhere in 2017 from the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Beginning with the origin of his comic book fandom and ending with the destruction of the universe. Professor Zoom Yukonori leads a monthly expedition through his favorite single-issue comic book stories from the Bronze Age of DC Comics. While promising unique celebrity guest perspectives in an ambitious attempt to set this program apart from other comic book review podcasts. Thrill to the imagination. Bask in the brilliance. Experience the wonder of... The Done in One Wonders Podcast Wonder Show. Discover how compressed storytelling can broaden one's mind. Listen for it wherever Fire and Water Podcast Network podcasts are networking. In contrast to more recent episodes, the email sack has been positively bulging. So let's delve deep, should I? Our first email tonight comes from Chris Franklin. Super 30-year-old. Hello, Andy. Great episode focusing on Superboy. Thank you very much, Chris. Very much appreciated. I was right, though, when that show debuted, and man, did it stink. The early episodes are nigh unwatchable. It's no wonder that the first season DVD set nearly torpedoed the release of the later, better seasons. I do think Newton looked a bit more Superboy-like. He was a bit buffer and looked younger, but Christopher was the better actor of the two. Thankfully, I came back toward the end of season one when it improved, and was there for the rest of the run. And I wasn't sorry to see the kid from Weird Science dropped after season two. Man, that guy was annoying. I prefer TJ White from season one. I still need to get volumes three and four of the DVD sets because I barely recall Ron Eli as Superman. How could I forget something like that? Especially with my love of the older Earth 2 Superman of the Bronze Age. I agree with everything you said about the show and its great scripting and ambitious plots to the production values that often let those stories down. And Stacey Haydock. Wow. One reason to watch the show, even when it was very, very bad. But it's a very enjoyable show overall, and it's one I would love to revisit soon. Speaking of Lois and Clark, I'm sure you know that Gerard Christopher claims he was cast as Superman in that series, until someone realised he'd just finished playing Superboy. Now there's an alternate reality for you. Yeah, I'm aware of Gerard Christopher claiming that, but I'm also aware that Kevin Sorbo says that he was told that you know the part was his and then they went with Dean Kane. so whether they went with Christopher and then decided to go with Kevin Sorbo and then settled on Dean Kane, I don't I don't know I don't know who I believe in that particular scenario 
Chris followed that up with the Palace of Smashing Delights. Man, you're really cranking these out lately, aren't you? Um, I hadn't noticed, to be honest with you, but, you know, the muse hits you when the muse hits you, doesn't it? Not complaining, keep them coming. I think it's obvious that Stan and Jack had absolutely no clue what to do with the Hulk. You don't go through that many rapid-fire changes in six issues if you have a plan in mind. I remember watching these comics adapted into semi-animation in the Marvel Superheroes TV show, and I couldn't even begin to keep up with how Banner changed from one episode to the next. Was he a brute? Was he dumb? Was he controlled by Rick? Was Banner in control? Varied from episode to episode, which is the pitfall of just literally adapting the comics verbatim. Thank goodness they found their groove with the character later on. Our old green skin may have been a footnote in the Marvel Universe, brought back to become a big star out of nowhere like Groot or some such. Your pending coverage of the return of the Incredible Hulk is slyly brilliant. I wish I'd thought of that. Can't wait to hear you discuss the time Lou, in his really bad fright wig, now with mullet, met the dad from Good Luck Charlie. Great episode as always, Chris. Well, thank you, Chris. And, as I mentioned at the top of this particular episode, the Incredible Hulk Returns commentary will be coming next time. Sorry for the delay. Keep your politics in my comics is from Nathaniel Wayne. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Nathaniel. I enjoyed your coverage of these early Incredible Hulk issues, and it's especially interesting to see some of the early approaches to now iconic characters. The way the series bounced around both in terms of ideas and tone makes me think that Kirby and Lee hadn't yet truly adopted long-term storytelling in mind, and were really just taking everything one issue at a time. I think in many ways Hulk benefited from the superhero landscape being much more sparse. If the Hulk had that kind of debut today, he'd have been dropped like a hot potato, never to be seen again except in background shots or to be off-handedly killed during an event down the line. But back then, if Lee and the rest of Marvel decided they needed a monster hero that was different to the Thing, it was an easy call to bring the Hulk back. But these days, if a new character doesn't arrive fully formed and firing on all cylinders, and sometimes even if they are, they're quickly forgotten about in favour of going back to the well of established characters again. New characters aren't given the room to evolve or breathe and grow in the way they used to. That being said, we've seen this go wrong in the other direction, with the glut of truly atrocious characters outstaying their welcomes during the 90s. Middle ground is always tough to land on. As to your question about whether or not politics have a place in comics, the short answer is of course they do. I find the timing of this rather fortuitous, as only a couple of weeks ago I put up a video addressing the spurious argument I keep hearing from Doctor Who fans that the show didn't used to have politics but does now, and that's why they're angry. You can check out that video on the Council of Geeks YouTube channel for the complete breakdown, but people howling keep politics out of my entertainment irk me on a fundamental level. Because in truth that's not really what they're saying. Because to say you want no politics in your entertainment is to say that you don't really want it to be about anything deeper than good guys fight bad guys and little to nothing under the surface. You can watch old G.I. Joe cartoons for that. Or maybe not, since the Joes are a military group and Cobra are terrorists. Maybe it's safer to just stick to Teletubbies. Ah, but... See, there you go. Nathaniel, the Teletubbies had a political subtext in that Tinky Winky was clearly gay. And a lot of people followed up on that and accused the Teletubbies of forwarding the gay agenda. I actually saw those articles. So even Teletubbies has a political subtext to it. I mean, I, I was thinking about this a lot because um, I'd wrote this Planet of the Apes episode before I watched your, your YouTube video, but obviously it's going up after that. And um, I was intrigued by it at the... Um, 
on a fundamental level because I had just covered the Incredible Hulk comics as that video went up. So it was intriguing to me in that there were a number of political overtones to those stories, as, as daft as they were. And the Doctor Who thing, you're quite right in your mention that, you know, Doctor Who has always had a satirical political bent to a number of its stories, particularly the John Pertwee era, which has an awful lot of political subtext embedded into the story framework. And one of my favourite episodes from the Tom Baker era as an adult is The Sunmakers, which is one of the most savage political satires that Doctor Who has ever attempted. Another thing that I'd, I'd noticed, I've, I've just been re-watching The A-Team on Forces TV. It's, it's getting a rewatch on Forces. And, you know, by and large, The A-Team is a, is a live-action cartoon. Not much thought is given to the fact that bullets fly everywhere and, and nobody gets hurt or any of that, because that's what it is. It's a live-action Roadrunner cartoon. The producers knew what The A-Team was and played it up with a lot of intentional humour to offset the, the sillier aspects of it. But by golly, that, that show is a, a, a ultra-right-wing wet, wet dream when you watch it as an adult. But interestingly, there was an episode where the team were hired by Dr. Hewer from Book Rogers, or rather his son, played by Flash Gordon, Sam J. Jones. And Dr. Hewer played the leader of this almost Amish like community of non-violence um, of people who subscribe to the vision of non-violence and that episode was particularly intriguing for a number of levels you've got Hannibal Smith being forced into helping somebody without his usual playbook because Hewer won't allow it and there's a line in the episode where Hannibal actually says I've never equated pacifism with cowardice uh, it's an interesting episode. I can see what they were trying to do, but that kind of thing seriously undercuts a show like The A-Team, which is essentially just wish-fulfillment vigilante drama. That's that's all it is. It's a comedy. And it was, it was an interesting episode, but it was slightly misguided. But politics, there's a political subtext, I think, to everything, more or less. You know, it's getting more overt at the minute. Because I think at the moment we are, are living in a time where it is becoming increasingly difficult to not be politically engaged on some level. We're getting to a point where even people like me, who doesn't consider himself left-wing, doesn't consider himself right-wing, is actually getting to the point where I'm having to draw a line in the sand and say, no, this is where I'm standing, this is who I'm supporting. Um, and this particular juncture, we're all at that point. I think society, your country, my country, what's going on in Germany, what's going on in France, what's going on in North Korea, we're getting to a point where we're being forced to pick a side. And that's making our entertainment more political. That's just my opinion on the matter. Nathaniel continues, when people say this, what they really mean is, I don't like the political slant I'm seeing, but they don't want to say that because then they'd have to justify their stance. It's easier to just say no politics than actually explore what the politics don't sit well, to easily explore what about the politics, sorry, don't sit well with you, and explain that to others. Now, to be fair, things can get muddy a little bit with children's entertainment, which comics at the very least used to be. I'd buy that a certain percentage of the no politics in my comics people just didn't realise how many political issues were baked into the comics they enjoyed as kids because they weren't tuned in enough to catch the parallels. But that doesn't mean the politics weren't there. It just means you didn't see them. 
So again, even given the benefit of the doubt, it shows a lack of self-awareness to be saying politics have no place in comics. Politics have a place in everything because context matters. Intent matters. And the state of the world at the time a piece of art is created matters. That's not to say that political messages can't be implemented poorly or be preachy or offensive or flat out at odds with the story that's being told. Poor political messaging can certainly derail storytelling and it's fair to call that out. But saying politics have no place is a smokescreen. Frankly, you're allowed to still enjoy work that has a political message you disagree with and you're allowed to dislike work that aligns with your own political beliefs. Politics matter, yes, but they're not the total sum worth of a piece of art or an artist. Some great works have been made by some truly awful people. Some well-intentioned works have been insufferably bad. And sometimes somebody will point to a politically iffy quality in a book, film or comic I love. And you just have to shrug and say, well, yeah, I see what you're saying, but it's still a great story. I've ranted enough for now. Keep up the great work. Geekily yours, Nathaniel Wayne. The, the last point that you make about still enjoying the work of somebody who, who may not agree with you politically or may have done something questionable is quite interesting in the light of the accusations that Joss Whedon's wife made against him in an article published in Forbes or Vanity Fair or something like that, where the divorce has just been finalised and she's come out and, and said that for years... Whedon was having affairs with women and using perhaps his position as a staunch feminist to to get into positions where he could have affairs with, with such people. And there's a couple of interesting artefacts about that. There are people who are just going to turn their back on Whedon's work completely now because of that. Uh, I'm not one of those people. Just because he's turned out to be a terrible husband and a bit of a scummy bloke to his wife, to be brutally honest does not take away that in Becoming, he made one of the finest pieces of television ever made. That in Firefly, he created one of the greatest science fiction TV shows ever made. That in The Avengers, he made one of the finest comic-to-film adaptations ever made. All of that still stands. And you've basically got to say, yes, what he did wasn't nice, particularly to his wife. But at the same time, does that invalidate his work? You know, does it mean that his work has no merit? Does it mean that his position as a, a supporter of women's rights is now untenable because of his actions? And I kind of think that no, that it doesn't. It it means that he's just as shitty a human being as the rest of us are. But it doesn't invalidate his work, or invalidate his work, or it doesn't, in my opinion. Daniel Doherty's emailed in with palace suggestions. Hello, Andy. How come everyone skips the H? It's not like herb. <laughs> Hello, Daniel. Just a few possible suggestions for future Palace episodes. The idea of covering the Lee Ramita run on either The Amazing Spider-Man or The Daily Newspaper Strip has been talked about a lot recently. Personally, I would like to hear you cover the original Amazing Spider-Man run first. That way we can see the beginnings of the Stan Lee working with John Ramita before they teamed up again to work on The Daily Strip and how the two runs compare. Well, actually, the real reason I prefer seeing Amazing Spider-Man done first is so I can have a little more time to get my hands on the Spidey newspaper strip hardcovers to follow along. Well, both of those are still on the table. At the moment, my muse has just been taking me in different directions, but I certainly have an interest in covering some more of the Amazing Spider-Man. And if, if you'd all like to see it carried on in the same way that I did the Lee Ditko run, I would certainly be down with that idea. I don't know that I would do it in quite that fashion. 
like five weeks devoted to it. I may do the run of Spider-Man from 39 through to issue 50, and then at a later date pick up 51 to 60, that kind of thing, and do it as an occasional thing rather than every week. Um, I don't want people to think that this is just a Spider-Man podcast, not that there's anything wrong with that, but sometimes my muse takes me towards not wanting to talk about Spider-Man. So if I if I set myself in that I'm going to cover all of that stuff, suddenly I become an index show, and I do an index show, and as interesting as that is to look at something from the beginning to end, sometimes I just want to talk about other stuff, or I, there's an issue I just don't have anything to say about. And that leads to perhaps it being a chore to do it. And I never want it to be a chore because I think it shows through in the work if something's a chore to do. Nothing I've ever done on this show is a chore. I enjoy everything I've covered to certain degrees. And I just love this stuff generally. I love genre. I love comics. I love bad films and bad television. I love good films and good television. And trying to find the merit in something that other people perhaps dismiss is is a source of great interest for me. That's why I've got stuff like Street Hawk and Man from Atlantis on the docket to cover when I'm interested in doing so. So it will probably happen, I just can't say when. The only thing I would add is since you finished Lee Ditko about a year ago and this year you did Untold Tales, maybe wait until next year to cover Lee Romita. I'm there you go Dan covered that bit for me the thing as well with that as well Dan there is no definitive end to Lee Ramita it just kind of becomes other people and Ramita keeps coming back well into the Jerry Conway and indeed the Len Wein run Ramita will come back and pencil an issue every now and again and he, he was still doing the covers well into that run so it's not as clearly defined an era as Lee Ditko is but see would cover it i'm certainly interested in doing it the other thing i would love to see you do more of is classic star trek like you star trek for me begins and ends with the original series trying to explain my complicated love-hate relationship with the subsequent spin-offs would take up too much space let's just say that as far as i'm concerned if it doesn't have kirk and spock in it i don't care oh and if you read that last bit like shatner cheers all right okay i don't care now Despite mentioning on several occasions that the original Star Trek is probably your all-time favourite TV show, me too, by the way, the number of episodes of Hey Kids and Palace that actually focus on Trek are kind of sparse. I'd like to see this rectified. Um, The reason for that, Daniel, is Michael is my co-host on Hey Kids Comics, and although he likes Star Trek, and has, he's kind of grown up being exposed to it, um, I never really wanted to bore him by doing too much Star Trek on Hey Kids. Um, I have toyed with doing more of it on Palace. My my thinking, though, is that Star Trek's everywhere. There are loads of Star Trek podcasts for you to listen to. And I don't really want to just disappear into the, the crowd, if you will. I'd rather be the guy who covers, you know, stuff that no one else is talking about. I'd rather do the Spider-Man TV show from the 70s. I'd, I'd rather look at something like The Man from Atlantis than be just another Star Trek show. Um, there are a couple of Star Trek episodes that never saw the light of day for whatever reason. I was going to do something for the 50th anniversary where I picked my favourite musical tracks from the original Star Trek. And suddenly that morphed into the Enterprise show because I was just more interested in Enterprise at that point. Um, I've certainly have a desire to go back and do Star Trek. I'm toying with an idea of looking at some of the novels, some of my favourite novels 
from the original Star Trek. Um, there's certainly a possibility of covering more of the comics. I'd certainly be interested in doing that. So, again, it's not a question of, of if, it's just a question of when. It could be anything, comics, novels, toys, or even TV and movie audio commentaries, either by yourself or with the family. I'm sure that could be fun. Maybe show them Shore Leave, Wolf in the Fold, A Piece of the Action, or any other episode of your choice. That's an interesting idea, to do it with the fam. That, that could be fun. Until next time, live long and prosper, Dan. Well, thank you very much for emailing in, Dan. It's very much appreciated as is uh, everyone who emailed in today. It's always uh, very much appreciated to hear from you. Um, as I said, this one came about simply because I was ill for a couple of days. My first time off work in a decade and a half. So I had to do something to keep my idle fingers busy. Um, next time, I promise, will be the Incredible Hulk Returns commentary, which Michael Bailey and I are recording a week on Friday as you hear this. I mean, it'll be Saturday morning for me, but it'll be Friday night for Michael. Uh, and I hope you enjoy that, as it uh, is perfectly timed to coincide with the release of Thor Ragnarok. As usual, the Palace of Glittering Delights is a proud part of the Two True Freaks network. And again, as I always say, if you're buying anything from Amazon, pop along to twotruefreaks.com, click on the link, buy your stuff from Amazon. doesn't cost you anything extra, it gives us a kickback. And that's very much appreciated because it enables us to keep doing this stuff that you seem to enjoy so very much, and that I also enjoy very much. All right, I'll see you next time with that Incredible Hulk commentary. Uh, hope you'll join us for that. It will be. It promises to be a lot of fun. I know Michael's a big fan of that movie, so we should have uh, some laughs and some giggles when we do that. And I will see you next time.